If you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. It's a privilege to be with you this morning on the first Sunday of 2022. I was standing up here at the same place on the last Sunday of 2020, December 27th. I tend to enjoy preaching at the beginning and end of years because it seems that there is so much to say. There's so much tension and anticipation around this time of year, tension and anticipation in the world, tension and anticipation of a world that somehow believes every year that the turning of the calendar is somehow going to improve our fortunes from a year of hardship into something much better, a new and better horizon. Surely, we say every year, we can't help it but say it every year, surely this year is going to be better than the next, better than the last, excuse me. And, and I'm not standing up here today with the objective to, to burst that balloon necessarily or to ruin anyone's uh, New Year's resolutions or plans, but I do think it's helpful to remind you of something as we stand here together today in worship, just as we did on the last Sunday of 2020 with these very same expectations. You know, the reality is, is that we are just a people who are constantly looking forward with some kind of expectation. And in truth, I think we're, if I could put it this way, hardwired to hope. We're hardwired to hope. And intuitively, whether we are Uh, true believers or not, I think intuitively every single human being recognizes and believes that there is more to this life than we can see and experience with our senses. We're hardwired to hope. The problem is, is that our hope is often misplaced, isn't it? We hope in earthly things that we can see and tangibly experience because it is difficult. Let's all admit it. It's difficult to hope in heavenly things that we cannot yet see and experience. And at every turn of the year, we hope that the circumstances of the next year will be better than the circumstances of this past year, that our lives will go on improving. But I want to, uh, as I drag up my sermon from December 27, 2020, I I want you to hear uh, these words that were written then that still very much apply to today. I think you'll see that not much has changed. This year, I'm reading my sermon now from 2020. This year, we've witnessed an upheaval of the status quo in a global pandemic, a reality which we're all tired of hearing about and which has resulted in a complete turning upside down of even the most minute and mundane of our everyday tasks. This year, we've witnessed city ride Citywide riots, looting, and burning of the places and cities we call home. We've seen murder and violence and strife, and seen that murder and violence and strife responded to with even more murder, violence, and strife. We've witnessed a tumultuous political process that has thrown out any opportunity to see man as inherently good. And we could all spend hours talking about how many of us have individually faced and battled the internal enemies of anger. Anxiety, frustration, weariness, and perhaps most poignantly, a sense of despair. Indeed, the most difficult question for the world and all of us to answer as we stand on the precipice of a new year is where shall we find our hope? Where is the light at the end of the tunnel? When comes the dawn and the rising of the sun? 
As we approach the end of this year, the beginning of a new year, I'm reminded of how so many of us on New Year's Eve boldly proclaim that this year will be different. Each year we stay up late and count down to the clock in raucous hope, hope that this year will be better, that things this year will be made right. And yet none of us could have expected all that this year would contain, speaking of 2020. And I should say, none of us can comprehend or foretell what next year will bring. The question we must answer is, where shall we find our hope? We must understand that our hope cannot be found in the new year. For we know nothing of what it will bring. And indeed, we did know nothing of what 2021 would bring. And though we groan to say it, what if next year is even more chaotic than this year? What will we do then? Let me ask you something. I'm still reading here. Let me ask you something, and this will be uncomfortable and difficult. I praise God that he has so gifted people in this world that through the efficacy of their gifts and talents, we have come to develop a vaccine for this virus that has caused so much disruption, pain, and death. This is something that we can be grateful for and rejoice in. But let me ask you this. What happens if next year that virus mutates, arises, and throws the world into another state of pandemic? What if the new year brings a new virus? Or in our case, what if that virus never goes away? You see, we're all waiting for this climactic moment where we can finally sigh and take a deep breath and feel some sense of relief, believing that now things are under control, now we can get on with life. But I have to ask you, what if that moment never comes? If not a new virus, what about a hurricane? An earthquake? Tornado? Cancer? An unexpected death. If that sermon is any proof, we are not in control. And this year, 2021 and 2022, will continue on teaching us that very hard lesson until we're ready to learn it. We are not in control. But there is one who is. The problem with our hope is it's often misplaced. I think there's no better time. And if I find myself again next year preaching around this same time, I'll probably be preaching on this same thing. But there's no better time to survey our hope, to look to the words of Scripture to find where we may be reminded of the glorious promises of God in Christ Jesus, to hear of promises that have been fulfilled so that we can have confidence and assurance that the promises that yet remain will be fulfilled as well. We come here today to find a hope that the world does not understand. And a hope that is difficult for us to grasp. And yet it is a hope that does not put us to shame. We come today to stand in the presence of God in Christ. And by the light of his glory, be reminded of the glory that awaits all of us. Who are united to Christ by faith. A fullness of glory, which Paul will tell us here today, cannot even be compared to our present suffering. In 2020, creation was groaning. In 2021, creation was groaning. Today, creation is still groaning. Trials are abounding. Sickness and sorrow and grief remain. I think that's the summation of what we heard in those prayer requests. And yet none of these things, none of these trials, none of these present sufferings have the power to snatch away the assurance of this hope that is offered today in these precious words given to us in Romans chapter 8. Let's turn to those now and read. Hear now the very word of God for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells within you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also then give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are, not, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For it is in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us 
all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Indeed, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word. We ask it in Christ's name, by his merit, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, I could really just sit down. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most encouraging chapters in all of Scripture. The first words of verse 1 I consider to be right up there with John 3.16. And these words really don't need any adornment, and certainly not from me. But this also happens to be a pastor's dream chapter, since it is one that can be preached on endlessly without ever exhausting the encouragement it provides. So with my feeble efforts, all I hope to do today is to gather up all the encouragement that we can hold on to and walk into this new year with those truths and assurances and mercies of God. The truth is that we could preach one sermon or we could preach a hundred sermons on this chapter and it would still lead us to worship and joy and hope every time. Today we have one sermon. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the chapter in three sections. Paul really lays it out very helpfully here. Verses 1 through 17 are the foundation These verses lay the groundwork of the gospel and they form really the pillar of support on which the rest of the chapter rests. And so we're going to call this first section our gospel foundation. Next, we have verses 18 through 25, which primarily deal with hope and the future glory that awaits the second coming of Christ towards which all of creation is moving. And so we will call this section our gospel hope. And then finally, verses 26 through 38 form a powerful conclusion that is packed full of wonderful assurances of the surety of our hope and of the security of our salvation. And so we will call that final section our gospel assurance, our gospel foundation, our gospel hope, and our gospel assurance. All that to say is I hope you leave here today with a little bit of gospel. And I hope you'll be encouraged this sermon to lift your eyes beyond what is visible, beyond what we can see, beyond what we're feeling and experiencing and what our our bodies are enduring here. I hope that you'll be able to, for a moment, lift your drooping head and see the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. My hope is very simple. It's one sentence here. That you would stand upon the firm foundation of our gospel. That you would be filled with the hope that our gospel provides. And that you would be secure in that hope because of the assurance that we have in that gospel. Let's start then with our first section, our gospel foundation, verses 1 through 17. Here Paul is going to remind us of four powerful gospel truths 
which we must know and we must understand before we can move on to understand what our gospel hope is that Paul will address in the next section. So let's look at these four gospel truths. First, Paul begins this wonderful chapter by declaring these precious words of Christ's justification. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have no doubt that you've heard that verse many times. I have no doubt that you've read it many times, but hear it one more time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that the gavel of the eternal judge will never ring out for your condemnation if you are in Christ. It means that the chains which once bound you to sin and death now are no more. But in fact, instead of chains, what you wear is the righteous robes of the Son and are justified in the sight and presence of God the Father Almighty. That is a wonderful place to start. If you are in the midst of despair and suffering, what better place to go than to hear that now condemnation cannot even be named. That you are saved, justified, and able to come into the presence of God through Christ. Now Paul is distinguishing here between two periods of time, and this is helpful for us to to think about and to see. Paul says, then we were condemned. But now we are no longer condemned. Then we were dead in trespasses and sins, justly deserving of the full wrath of God. For the wages of our sin is death, and each one of us deserved death. For we had broken the law of God. And the law, which by nature of its divine author requires, as you've heard, perfect, personal, and perpetual holiness. The holy God, if indeed He is God, and if indeed He is holy, He cannot be in the presence of sin. It's an impossibility. So the only way that we can be with God where He is, is through Christ. Is through the one, the life, death, and resurrection of the one we've just spent a season celebrating. Emmanuel, God with us. He dwells with us, within us, and so we are able to call God our own, even as he calls us his own. We, this, is, this is where we start. There is no other starting place. We start with this wonderful truth, that by Christ's sacrifice in his life and death as a fulfillment of the, both the requirements and the penalties of the law, now we who rest and rely upon Christ and his merits are justified in the sight of God, and we will never have to face condemnation again. We are justified by faith in Christ alone and forever freed from sin. This is our starting place. The second gospel truth that Paul wants us to know is that God has done this great work of salvation by his own initiative. Not by our works, but by his. He has accomplished this salvation, and so our salvation rests wholly and completely upon the grace of God. We're told this in verse 3 because this is what the law could not do. What could the law not do? The law could not save Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin or as a sin offering and so condemned sin in the flesh. It was not the law that was insufficient. The law perfectly reflects the holiness of its author. The law is perfectly holy. So what's, what's the weak link? It's us. Is that we could not attain to the standards of the law. We are the insufficiency of the law, which is what Paul's telling us here. The law weakened by sin could not save, but God, of his own initiative, of his own free grace and love, provides his own Son who is able to attain to that perfect personal and perpetual holiness that the law required. First, we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Second, who God provided 
that we might be saved by Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law of God. In other words, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I wonder where you've heard that before. Third, Christ not only fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law himself, forever removing the penalty and the curse of the law, but in doing so, he also provides us with his spirit, so that by the spirit, we may now fulfill the law by living and walking in holiness. Verse 4, Christ did this, that is that Christ has accomplished salvation in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, we have to start with Christ's fulfillment first, because the law, weakened by our flesh, could not save. But Christ came to save and give us His Spirit, so that now we can fulfill the law of God by walking in holiness and gratifying the Spirit of God that dwells within us. Paul's giving us another distinction here, that of living in the flesh and living in the Spirit. And the To to break it down a little bit more simply, the difference between the two is this. Either we are self-centered or we are God-centered. To live in the Spirit is to live and trust in God. To live in the flesh is to live and trust in ourselves. Either we are compelled in all we think, do, and say by the Spirit of God, or we are compelled in all we think, do, and say by the Spirit of the flesh. And Paul says, listen, these two are not compatible. They're opposed to each other. They're contrary to one another. And importantly, as he says here, they lead in opposite directions. To set our minds on the flesh, that is to trust in ourselves, to live through ourselves, that has one outcome. Hear Paul's warning. It has one outcome, and that outcome is death. To set our minds on the Spirit is to trust in the Spirit of God and so live for the glory of God, which Paul tells us brings what? Life and peace. I think I'd rather have life and peace. As happy a tune as it is, the hymn, Trust and Obey, conveys this very same message, doesn't it? I won't ask you to sing it with me, but trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. There is no other way. Those are the only two options. Either we live for God by His Spirit or we live for ourselves. One leads to life and peace, the other leads to death. In the words of Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose which path you will walk. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is incredibly important for understanding of hope, which we'll see in our next section, because this is the great challenge that we face every day. Indeed, every new year, we face the challenge of gratifying the desires of the flesh or gratifying the desires of the spirit. We cannot understand our gospel hope if we are living in the flesh. What I mean is this. If we're unwilling to give up what is earthly for what is heavenly, we cannot understand what hope is offered to us here in this passage. If we're unwilling to put the spirit of flesh to death, we will not inherit the promises of heaven. We cannot understand what hope is if we reject life and peace that is offered through the Spirit of God. So gospel hope is incompatible with living by the Spirit of the flesh. It makes sense, right? If we're consumed, if, if, our, if, if all our thoughts, words, and deeds are consumed with what happens here, 
then we cannot expect to be looking forward to heaven with eager expectation. John has said it many times before. If we're bored with this on earth, we will certainly not want it in heaven. If we are captivated by our earthly possessions, our careers, all that we have here, if we're captivated by those things, we will not be captivated by the hope of the gospel. Live for the Spirit, by the Spirit, and so be filled with life and peace. Fourth, because we've been given the Spirit of God, we are then assured by the witness of the Spirit of the promise of eternal life and of the heavenly inheritance that awaits us who are united to Christ by faith. Look at verse 11 with me. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Just as the Spirit of God raised Christ from the dead, so then will the Spirit of God also raise you to eternal life. Now, how is that possible? Well, let's just trace the gospel truths that we've already heard. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, who came to live and die and be raised again, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law and gifting us with His Spirit so that we too, like Him, by His Spirit, may live in holiness according to God's law. And it is by that same Spirit that we are assured that though this present life and world and body is passing away, this is not the end, but we are being renewed day by day until one day we will be restored in perfect holiness and relationship in the eternities of heaven. For the very same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also raise us from death to life to reign with Christ by His side forever and ever. Amen. I hope you see why this is the foundation of this entire chapter and why we have to start here, because it's the very essence and substance of the gospel. And we cannot hope to understand our hope, our gospel hope, if we don't first grasp the very truths of the gospel that Paul has given us here. And it is these gospel truths which give us a foundation to stand on. We need something to stand on in the midst of this present time of suffering, which Paul is about to tell us is now. Now is not the time of heaven. Now is not the blessed days of, of rest where we're free from sin and corruption. That time is coming, but it's not here yet. Paul tells us now is the time of suffering. And if we don't have a firm foundation to be standing upon, we will be swept away with the cares of this world. And Paul begins the next section, verses 18 through 25, considering this present suffering. And again, I would say to you, it is only in light of the gospel that we can rightly consider our present sufferings. Now that we've heard our gospel foundation, it's time for us to examine how we can live those truths out in our gospel hope. And the Apostle Paul gives us three ways that we are to live out these gospel truths. He says that we are to consider our present suffering in light of eternity that we're to groan with all creation for Christ's second coming, and we're to hope with patient perseverance. Paul calls us here to consider our present sufferings, and they are many, aren't they? The curse is found in many places and felt in many ways. Our present suffering is an ever-present virus and sickness that isn't going away. Our present sufferings are frail bodies and failing health. They are bronchitis, they're pneumonia, macular degeneration and cancer. They're fear and sadness and depression, anxiety, grief and sorrow. They are spiritual burnout and exhaustion and weariness. 
their raging fires and destructive tornadoes, their wayward sons, wayward husbands, their strained marriages and struggling families. They are the death of a beloved wife, mother and grandmother. These are the pains of our present suffering. And they seem so very heavy. Yet Paul calls us to lift our eyes to the grand scope of eternity and through the lens of the gospel, view the glorious inheritance that awaits the saints of God, the knowledge that we will one day reign with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. Paul wants us to have hope because these truths are ours. And these truths comfort us. And we recognize in that truth that this present suffering, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed In view of the gospel, our heavy burdens become weightless. Not meaningless, but weightless. The weight of eternal glory, Paul says, far outweighs the heaviness of our present sufferings. And this is how we are to suffer and to suffer well. We don't ignore our suffering. We don't try to distract ourselves from our suffering. We don't despair in the midst of our suffering, but we view our present suffering through the lens of the gospel. And in doing so, our vision is expanded so that we see all of life, that we see all of creation groaning together in eager anticipation for Christ's second coming. That is the hope that Paul desires us to have. I think too often we settle for weaker comparisons What I mean is this, that we often compare our present suffering in light of our own lives. When we're in the midst of suffering, what we do is we generally look back on times in our life when we weren't suffering, when things seem to be going well, when our bodies start to creak and make sounds that they shouldn't. We long for the days of our youth when someone we love dearly departs this earth. We long for the earlier days when they were still here. When the present suffering overwhelms us, what we tend to do is we comfort ourselves with memories of better times. But this kind of comparison can't bring us the full joy and hope that Paul speaks of here. Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, and I know you know this is true, every memory, every memory that we have, every experience that we have here on earth is tainted in some way. We live in a broken world. Nothing that you look back on will you find perfection And true comfort and joy and hope in. If we put our hope in better earthly circumstances, whether in the past or in the future, I promise you, we will always be disappointed. Some of us may be more tempted to look back on the good old days, but I know that other of us are tempted to look forward to a better future. Things that we have not yet attained that we desire. But in both cases, what we're doing is we're looking for some way to try to alleviate the weight and pressure of the present. But Paul says here, the right and godly way, the way of life and peace is to consider our present sufferings. That is to look them in the face and yet to look at them through the lens of eternity and the promises of the gospel which are ours in Christ. So the first Step. The first part of our hope is this, that we are to orient ourselves or we're to position ourselves toward the internal inheritance that Paul has just described. And that is this, that we will reign with Christ. We will be with Christ where he is and we will reign with him. If that's the case, if that's true, how can anything in this world take away the joy and, and, and glorious truth that is that we will be with Christ 
reigning with him. There's no other better way to say it. There's, there's, There's no other comparison. Just as Paul says here, our present sufferings cannot even measure up to how good that will be. We need not despair. Paul's not asking us to ignore our sufferings either. And neither will I. Look them straight in the face, but look at them through the lens of the truth of the gospel. Another part of suffering well in the present, another part of suffering with hope, is to groan and long for Christ's second coming. I'd like to ask if any of you have done any groaning this year, but I know the answer to that question. And the groaning which Paul speaks of here is a deep spiritual groaning which expresses an overwhelming desire to see Christ come again. And Paul wants us to know all creation is groaning with us. What happens in suffering is that we, as a kind of recoil response, when we suffer, we tend to draw inward. We individualize our suffering and we isolate ourselves. Why? Well, because we're hurting. And our response to being hurt, our response to suffering is to close up. But Paul wants to kind of pull our fingers out here and and, and recognize, listen, this is the state of all creation. All of creation is groaning and suffering together with you. All of creation is eagerly looking forward to the day when Christ will return. So don't don't cower and, and curl up into a ball. Your suffering is not done alone, but it is a part of a comprehensive groaning that's happening here in creation. Paul tells us it's creation itself, which was subjected to futility and corruption because of man's sin, now waits for the revealing of God's glory. To our shame, we might say that sometimes creation longs for and groans for Christ's return better than we do. Paul says we suffer well when we groan and long for Christ's return. One of the ways that we do that is through prayer. We long and groan for Christ's return through prayer. Prayer aligns us not only with God's will, it aligns us not only with God's love and heart, but it also aligns us with God's timeline. That is, it takes our mind and our eyes off of the present when we're tempted to see only what is in front of us. And it reminds us that not only is God in control, but things are all working according to his plan. Godly groaning with all creation is one that looks eagerly to Christ's return. Finally, Paul also exhorts us to hope with patient perseverance. He tells us it is in this hope that we're saved. And what is that hope that he is speaking of? What is our gospel hope? It's the promise of redemption and restoration, that Christ will come again to make all things new, that we will be with the Lord forever in his presence. I think we can all admit it is not easy to hope. These past few years have made it difficult to hope. We struggle to hope because hope requires faith for that which we cannot see. And we're a visual people. If we can't see it or sensibly experience it, we struggle to believe it is true. We're like Thomas, who could not believe that it was the Lord until he put his hands into the nail marks and the mark on Christ's side. From the spear that had pierced him, we struggle to hope. We've all been in that valley. Perhaps some of us are in that valley today. But Paul calls us to hope with patient perseverance. Patient perseverance. How are we to do this? We're to do this with these assurances. I want to leave you with this. 
today. We've heard of our gospel foundation. We've heard what it is like and what it is what requires our gospel hope. And now we hear at last these gospel assurances. Paul says, in the midst of your present suffering, I want you to remember this. Remember the help of the Spirit in our weakness. Remember the sovereignty of God over all things. Remember the unbreakable chain of Christ's redemption. And remember the impossibility of our separation from the love of God in Christ. The Spirit helps us in our weakness when we do not know what to pray or how to groan. We're assured of these promises by the character of God. We can trust that all that we've heard here today is true. We can trust in this hope because we're told that God's character is perfect, that all God's actions are in line with that character. And as he reigns over all creation with perfect sovereignty, so will all things work according to God's plan. Because God reigns in perfect sovereignty, we can have assurance that everything that happens in this life is ultimately for our good. And what is our greatest good but the glory of God? God will surely glorify himself. We're also assured of this gospel hope by this fact that Christ's redemption is unbreakable. Much has been said and written about the Ordo Salutis here in verse 30. And I want to say nothing more than this. What Christ begins, he will complete. What Christ begins, he will complete. The redemption of God in Christ is unbreakable. In this, we are finally assured that nothing, no tribulation or present suffering, no distress or persecution, no famine, no natural disaster, no nakedness, no danger, no violence, nor sword, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and certainly not anything that 2022 can throw at us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is our gospel assurance, which secures us in our gospel hope as we stand upon our gospel foundation. So go on mightily conquering in that truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which speaks so powerfully to our context and situation. Lord, our present suffering is heavy, but our present hope is that which far outweighs all of our suffering. We thank you, Lord, that you are preparing for us now eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison, so that we may consider Our present suffering is light and momentary. Father, lift our eyes to the glorious promises that we have heard this morning, and may we stand upon them in faith as we look to your second coming. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed in your bulletin that we are going to conclude by singing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. I apologize to you purists who don't sing Christmas songs after Christmas. But in truth, this is not simply a Christmas song. It's actually based on Psalm 98. It was written by Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts knew what it meant to suffer. At one point, he was so sick with a chronic illness that he spent four years out of his pulpit ministry away from his congregation. Isaac Watts knew what it meant to suffer. And yet he also knew what it meant to look towards his Savior. 
No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, for Christ comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. When Christ comes, he will complete the work of renewal and restoration that he has already begun. So let's sing together. Now and through the rest of 2022, joy to the world, the Lord has come.